Live from Woking, this is the Saturday Brunch with Emma Williams. Hello, welcome to the Saturday Brunch show with me, Emma Williams. Today I'm exploring the wonderful world of books and teachers in them. How have schools and how have teachers been portrayed in literature over the years? And what can we learn from the reflecting on this? So call in if you like. Hope you'll stay with me for this lovely morning show. Live from Woking, this is the Saturday Brunch with Emma Williams on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good morning, everybody. Well, I guess your half term is either like mine, just ending or just beginning. So either way, you should be feeling pretty relaxed. So I'm hoping that you will stay with me for this morning while I reflect on the world of books, but more about that later. I hope you survived Storm Eunice yesterday. It was pretty hectic here, although weirdly sunny. Uh, no rain whatsoever, um, but yes, yeah, scarily windy. Uh, I had a completely insane friend who insisted on coming over. I did say we could do a Zoom chat, but she really hates Zoom. I think because she works on Zoom, so I think it, she associates it with work. Uh, so she insisted on uh, coming over, uh, and but she survived. Uh, she did get safely home. I did check. Uh, and the cats remained curled up in the uh, fetal position for the entire day, which was far more sensible. So this morning I am on my own, so please do call in, go crazy. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, otherwise it'll literally be me for 90 minutes. But don't feel sorry for me because it basically means I can talk about whatever I like. And I always find the guaranteed way to get intelligent conversation is to talk to yourself. So I am going to be looking at the portrayal of teachers in books, and I'll explain what made me think about this topic uh, in a few minutes time. But before we get on to that, the first thing I would like to explore is actually my own relationship with books and with reading. And I wonder how many of you will recognise what I'm going to be talking about, because I think saying I like reading and I like books is actually quite a loaded statement. I think we all have a different relationship with books and with reading. Some of us very positive, obviously for some people very negative. And I've been reflecting on that over the last few years, mainly since the advent of audiobooks. And I'm going to say more about that later. I think our relationship with books is all tied up with how you feel about how you got on at school. I think that is a big part of it. So for example, I have friends and members of my family who struggled in school for, for whatever reason. And that is then tied up with reading for them. And it means that they're anxious about reading uh, and have this sort of gut instinct that they don't enjoy it, that it's not, it's not their way of of approaching life. They don't do it for pleasure and it wouldn't be uh, a place they would go, for example, to seek help or solace in, in reading. 
So I think the way we feel about reading and literature is all tied up with how we feel about academia. And for, of course, for most people, that simply means school. Not everybody goes on uh, further in academia. To my own relationship with reading, I was a very strong reader as a child. I don't recall learning to read, um, which of course means it was very easy. I just picked it up very naturally. Um, and I've done a lot of reading and learning in more recent years about how it is that children do actually learn to read. As a secondary school teacher, this is not something I, I've known much about, but I, I have been uh, keeping up with the, the latest debates uh, on phonics and, and taking a real interest in it because as somebody who never struggled with reading, of course, it didn't matter for me how, frankly, badly I was taught. Um, I just, I'd already picked up reading, I'm pretty sure, before I started school. Um, and then as I went through school, loved reading, could get lost in it really easily, had no problem with concentration, you know, lived and breathed the books that I was reading, did the usual thing of getting stuck in a bit of a rut. I think my my mother despaired of me ever letting go of Enid Blyton. Um, she did try, but I, I clung on insistently for quite some time, read every single Famous Five book, every single Mallory Towers book, every single St. Clair's book, you name it, I read it by Enid Blyton. Uh, so that was a bit of a rut, but of course, you get out of it you know if you if you love reading you you move past that so i would say to any worried parents or teachers out there don't worry don't fight it it, it will pass <laughs> um, but i have very fond memories of, of that time and i just became obsessed with other children's authors like uh judy bloom uh and uh oh what's her name um really famous children's author that's still writing uh, I keep thinking Jeanette Winterson, but that's somebody completely different. <laughs> uh, the name will come to me. But yeah, completely obsessed with certain authors when I was young. Now, when I got that little bit older and started taking my studies a little bit more seriously, that is when my love of reading started to wane. And particularly during my PhD, um, I stopped reading altogether. I, I hadn't read for pleasure for several years when I entered teaching. Uh, still didn't find the time for it. I had committed to a couple of academic publications when I first joined the profession, so I still, in my so-called spare time, had to be finishing off those. And I had kind of fallen out of love with reading. And I blamed my PhD for that because I associated reading with work. And of course, I did have to do a lot of reading because of my studies. Uh, and also I felt it robbed me of the ability to read for pleasure, not just because there was always that, oh, I should be doing some work rather than reading, which is a bit of a curse in academia because you always could be doing more. Um, so it was partly that, but actually <laughs> I found it completely changed the way that I read. And I developed this awful habit of urgently skim reading. Because, of course, in my academic career, that was a really useful skill. So you literally hold the book further away from you, um, absorb the whole sentence, look for keywords, and, and you're not reading for pleasure at all. You're not enjoying the process. You're just urgently seeking information. And I found it really hard to break that habit. So 
I really felt that my studies had robbed me of the pleasure of reading. But I'm going to make a confession here. If I'm honest with myself and I look back over that time, I don't really think it was any of those things that stopped me reading. I think what stopped me reading was my own snobbery. So I had developed this idea that reading was uh, a, 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 perhaps not necessarily an academic, but a fine pursuit, um, a noble pursuit. And that if you weren't reading something enriching or challenging uh, or of a certain quality, then you were wasting your time. Bizarrely, I didn't feel that about anything else, TV, film, music, for some reason, and I wonder how many people would say the same, because I suspect it's quite a few. For some reason, I was absolutely convinced that reading was this noble pursuit and, and you must be reading something uh, worthwhile. So, of course, as a, a beleaguered academic, I just stopped reading because I was too tired uh, and too, frankly, depressed, uh, as I've spoken about before, uh, to, to do anything like that. Uh, and I just stopped reading altogether. And it was only when I let go of that frankly ridiculous notion when I was a little bit older that I rediscovered my love of reading. And I suddenly thought, why have I got this special set of rules for books when I don't have this set of rules for anything else in my life, whether it be cultural, a hobby, whatever, I don't have a special set of rules. Um, you know, I had absolute trash TV and films that I was happy to watch. Uh, I had absolute trash music that I was happy to listen to. Uh, so what, what, why not the same, let myself do the same with books? If I fancy reading something light and trashy, what's the problem with that? So looking back, it was quite bizarre that I developed this, this set of opinions. Now, focusing still on, on that kind of snobbery, which I, I worry a lot of people do have, there's a really weird snobbery about audiobooks, and I find this really fascinating. Now, I am now personally completely obsessed with audiobooks. I listen to them all the time. Um, it's actually bordering on a, a, a slightly worrying obsession. So any sort of spare possible moment that I've got, I think, oh God, I could I could squeeze in five minutes while I'm doing this to, to listen to this book that I'm really into. Absolutely love them. Buy the absolute biggest package that you can buy on Audible. But for the uninitiated, it's not just about Audible, although Audible is amazing. Uh, your library also has a collection of audiobooks. It's nothing like as big and comprehensive as Audible, of course, but it's definitely worth a look. So I have read or listened to, again, I'm going to come back to that. Lots of people think you're not really reading if you're listening, and I'm going to talk about that. Um, I've listened to a lot through through the library. So I've got uh, Kate James messaging in saying, I love Audible, yay! Uh, love it when authors read the books. Yeah, now that's an interesting one. Um, they've got to be a good narrator. Um, a good narrator makes or breaks a book. I've certainly listened to books that I've thought, Do you know what? I'm not sure I would have stuck with this if it weren't for the narrator. Uh, and by the way, back to snobbery, 
that goes for some classics. So again, you know, books that I would not have had the time and energy to stick with. If I'm totally honest, and again, I, I don't know how many people are willing to be honest about this, but I'm totally out there now. Um, I don't think I would have got through, for example, Dracula. Uh, I don't think I'd have sat down and read that. Um, but I listened to it. Fantastic narration. And I was gripped and frankly terrified. Uh, absolutely loved it. Um, so I've got Kate Jones and... Uh, Tom messaging in about educational books and absolutely right there are some loads of the books that we all read about teaching are available as audiobooks so if you're not a massive reader you can access them that way so I've I've not done that I've actually looked at educational books in the traditional way largely because I like to sort of underline and, and highlight stuff that I think is useful and that's where I use my skim reading techniques um yeah sorry guys but i do skim read your books um but uh kate is saying that david didow is a really good narrator as is ross mcgill um and tom says he's reading tom bennett's recording of his own book at the moment yeah i bet it's great because tom's got a fantastic voice beautiful scottish accent so i bet that's a lovely listen absolutely awesome so yeah, audiobooks are just wonderful and i'm going to make a bit of a case for them because i i do find it genuinely quite upsetting that people are snobby about them so let's think about why so i think people feel that you're not reading you're not properly accessing the literature if you're not physically reading now i'm not talking about talking about children here because i think it is very important that children do both. I think children should have access to audiobooks. Um, children should be read to. That is absolutely crucial. And I attribute one of um, the, the reasons why I was such a strong reader to being read to as a child by both parents, but particularly by my father. He read me stuff that was way beyond my capabilities of actual reading, but that then I had access to and I remember the story also I remember when he was really young he read me when I was really young he read me Treasure Island um there's no way I would have sat down and read it as a child but I really enjoyed listening to it so hugely important that children have access to listening but of course it is hugely important that children learn to physically read as well I mean of course that goes without saying but once we've got past okay educational purpose children need to read for all sorts of reasons as a life skill why are we so convinced that if you listen to a book it's not the same as reading it that is such a modern idea because it's only well everyone talks about the advent of the printing press but that was actually quite a few centuries ago books were still incredibly expensive after that mainly because of the binding and it wasn't until modern methods of binding, frankly, until they they learn how to do it with glue. Um, so we are talking 20th century and quite a bit into the 20th century where you've got those penguin paperbacks coming out that were really, really cheaply available. Uh, and yeah, as Kate Jones has just messaged in, of course, yeah, the levels of literacy in society were much lower as well. We didn't have the education system that we have now that 
makes one of its core purposes that everybody should learn to read. Um, so the overwhelming majority of people would have accessed books through listening. So their access to physical books would have been very limited, even if they weren't super poor, that you just couldn't get hold of these things in the same way. Um, they weren't readily available to that degree and not everybody could read them. And I'm now going to talk about eyesight because I mentioned those penguin paperbacks that came out really and were really cheap and widely available. Well, that's fantastic. Wonderful. I can't read them because the print is really tiny uh, and I've got quite poor eyesight and I've only got proper sight in one eye. And the as the optician warned me, I'm really starting to feel it now as I stare 50 squarely in the face. <laughs> um, it, it, I do get very tired. By the end of the day, as, as a friend of mine put it, you just can't cope with any more seeing. And I was like, yeah, I do feel quite overwhelmed by the end of the day. My, my eye, the one I use to see, starts aching. And I just can't use it anymore. And I have to be quite careful not to read really small print because I find that makes things worse. So audiobooks have been massive for me from that point of view as well, as was, of course, the advent of the Kindle and then iBooks reading on my iPad. Basically, I can make the font as large as I like. So even when those cheap Penguin paperbacks came out, I wonder how many people genuinely struggled to access them, especially as they got older. Um, because, you know, they they were really super tiny. It, modern, but we're all very used to saying modern paperbacks now, uh, which are very, very different. If you look at an old school 1930s, 1940s penguin paperback, they are really tough to read, really tough to read. So I reckon a lot of people would have struggled. Another reason that audiobooks are so great is time. Now, I don't want to sound like some kind of, you know, jet setting uh, person who's just too busy to do anything and that, you know, I have to listen to my WhatsApp messages on times two because I'm just so busy. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's not true. But reality of having any job, particularly a teaching job, is, yeah, you are quite busy and you do get quite tired. So it means that I get to read, in inverted commas, every single day on the way to work and on the way back from work, whenever I'm doing some chores, whenever I settle down to sleep. If my husband's watching something boring on TV that I don't want to watch, I'll stick my headphones in. Uh, he doesn't notice most of the time. <laughs> he thinks I'm watching the telly, but I'm not. I'm listening to my book. Um, and it, it's just fantastic. So it's about finding that time. Now, I do find time for crosswords. Um, so you might say, well, why don't I find time for physical reading? Again, it's back to the eyesight thing. So with a crossword, I can look at the clue and then I will look away from it and stare out the window into the garden and ponder that clue for however long it takes me to get it, which may be anything between a few seconds and two hours. <laughs> so it's a very non-intense process where I'm thinking about the crossword all the time over maybe a period of two hours, but I'm not staring at it. And that I find I can cope with no problem. I suppose the one downside is I have noticed if anything, my attention span has got shorter. Um, and 
yeah, you have to be careful not to just get into the habit of having the book on, but actually you're not listening to it. So I think that is the literally the only downside I can I can think of for audiobooks. I don't know if anybody else can come up with any, but I am a huge, huge fan and they have been absolutely life changing for me. So if you haven't given them a go, uh, then please do. I've converted a few friends to them and like me, they have found that their amount of reading has rocketed. So they were managing a couple of books a year, you know, because they might read one on holiday and maybe one, at, you know, over Christmas that they, they would finish off during the spring. And that would be it. Whereas now they've got into audiobooks, they're listening to loads. I, I usually make my target of 100 a year. I mean, 100 books a year. And if I scroll back through, I, I use Goodreads to keep a record and I do remember them all. Um, so yeah, it's absolutely life changing. So Kate says it's the graphics slash images that make it difficult with audiobooks. Well, I've got no experience of how that's handled in an audiobook. So I've only ever pretty much only ever listened to fiction, I think. Can't think of an exception. Yeah, I use it purely for listening for pleasure. So I'm fascinated to know how they uh, handle that particular what do they do? Do they just like describe the image? I mean, how does that work? Uh, but then I suppose, thinking aloud, then that's amazing access for visually impaired people. So I guess they do what a, a VI assistant does for your visually impaired students in the class. Ah, so Kate says they sometimes include a PDF attachment. <laughs> Well, this is like a whole new world. Amazing. So that's my little pitch uh, for audiobooks. And that is my personal relationship with reading. So I am going to then go on to talk about my main theme, which is how teachers are portrayed in literature. And I'm going to explain the inspiration for it, first of all. Now, it all started with a show that I'm doing in three weeks time. So in three weeks time, I'm going to be interviewing Harry Hudson, who, along with Roy Blatchford, is uh, the co-author of a book called Must Do Better, How to Improve the Image of Teaching. And I've started reading the book because obviously it's kind of important to read the book before you interview the author. I'm kind of old fashioned like that. And I was thinking, oh, yeah, I better read it. You know, it was a bit bit of a work task. It's fantastic. I'm loving it, really enjoying it. Um, and they start, because they're talking about the image of teaching, they start with looking at very briefly at history and how teachers were portrayed in the very earliest novels. Because, of course, teaching as a profession, in a sense, isn't that old in this country. So if you look back at the very early periods, you're looking at people like governesses and, and tutors who were considered of extremely low status in these novels. So classic example, Jane Eyre. So she is this you know lowly governess. So they, they talk about that in general. They also talk about ancient history. So obviously, as you all know, I'm a Latin teacher. Uh, and it says, even if you go all the way back to ancient Rome, many of those whom the upper echelons of Roman society chose to educate them were highly educated Greek slaves. 
correct, recognized as wise as intelligent, yes, but slaves nonetheless. Absolutely true. And so from the ancient world, from whence, of course, we get a lot of our uh, cultural milieu, there's that concept that your teacher is a slave. Interesting. So in the book, they then, having looked at some examples of um, governesses and sort of tutors, you know, before before the advent of schools, before uh, the uh, factory laws, you know, changed everything and, and insisted that children should be in school full stop. Um, they then do start to look at the earliest portrayals of teachers. And of course, perhaps most famously, you have Dickens, who portrays Wackford Squeers in Nicholas Nickleby. <coughs> so Squeers is the owner and schoolmaster of a, a horrible school in, in Yorkshire. Uh, I hope it's fictional, but I'll, I presume, like most things in Dickens, it is portraying a certain reality. So I don't know how many of you have read Nicholas Nickleby, but Squeers is a completely repellent individual. So he's described as physically repulsive and he's portrayed as a bully, uh, someone who enjoys beating children nice so it does make you think well this is this is how it all started this is how teachers are portrayed in in fiction from the beginning so they take a, a, an extract uh, that says squeer's appearance was not prepossessing he had but one eye oh we've got that in common uh, and the popular prejudice runs in favor of two <laughs> well indeed I look like I've got two, so I get away with it. The eye he had was unquestionably useful, but decidedly not ornamental. Being of a greenish grey and in shape resembling the fan light of a street door. I mean, I think there's a bit of an um, ugly shaming going on here, which I'm not really liking, but there we go. That's Dickens for you. So it continues in that vein. So he really is described as a... a, a a, a monstrous individual he's clearly designed the character is designed to come across as a monster a cyclops a, you know a, a horror or not completely human now of course there is also another famous dickensian portrayal of a teacher in hard times and the authors pick up on that and they make the point that this has entered into our vocabulary so there's a character called Thomas Gradgrind. I've never been entirely sure how you pronounce the word uh, that's come from it. It's one of those things, and here's the whole thing about reading again. There are words that you've read but never heard said. So you think, well, how, how do you say Gradgrindian, Gradgrindian? Don't know, don't know which is the right. But it but it has entered into our vocabulary as a description of someone who is completely devoted to facts and figures at the exclusion of all else, as they say in um, Must Do Better. So Thomas Gradgrind is a, a teacher and he's completely obsessed with facts. So he's basically, I mean, he suppose, I suppose comes across as, as autistic to, to those of us that are in the modern world, um, completely obsessed with 
facts and factory settings uh, rather than building any kind of relationship with those that he's teaching and therefore actually communicating with them. They look at other examples that I didn't know about. So there's somebody called Dr. Blimber in Dombey and Son. Never read it, never heard of him, but they 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 look at him. Uh, he is apparently really just no good at his job. Um, and again, this seems to be quite a regular theme that teachers are portrayed as, as pretty terrible uh, in literature. Um, and yeah, that's something I, I, I'm going to look at because I'm going to go on to look at how they're portrayed in children's literature, which of course is, is hugely important. So this book, Must Do Better by, by Harry Hudson and Roy Blatchford, was the original inspiration. And I'm really excited to be interviewing Harry in three weeks time. And obviously we will talk about the rest of the book in a lot more detail in that show. So I'm gonna come back to uh, teachers in children's literature shortly. So we're going to take a little bit of a break. We'll hear from our sponsors and get the news and the tech briefing. And then we will continue with our tour through teachers in literature. Don't go anywhere. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.weatherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Introducing Uplearn. Uplearn is an online curriculum learning resource for A-levels that improves student outcomes whilst reducing teacher workloads. Teachers use Uplearn to facilitate independent learning and consolidation of classroom material. Over 150 schools have seen grade improvements with Uplearn, including St Paul's Girls School, Michaela Community School and ARC Schools. Book a demo at uplearn.co.uk and quote TTR for 10% off. That's Uplearn, U-P-L-E-A-R-N dot co dot UK. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common, a passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News.
Following reports earlier this week of the UCAS announcement that 2020 to 2021 saw a surge in applicants to university from students from disadvantaged backgrounds, one of Greater Manchester's universities revealed data showing that nearly 99% of its students last year fell into one or more of the five core underrepresented groups. In a report in the Manchester Evening News, the University of Bolton highlights figures showing that last year, 28% of applicants were from disadvantaged areas, up from 17% in 2013. University bosses say that these figures show that the university is helping students climb the social and economic ladder. The university's Vice-Chancellor, Professor George E. Holmes, said, The University of Bolton is proud to have one of the most diverse and inclusive student populations in the UK. Widening participation projects take place across the UK and are designed to improve access, success and progression for underrepresented groups in higher education. The Birmingham Live News website reports on Birmingham City Council's leaders' plea to leave Trojan Horse in the past. It follows calls by the Muslim Council of Britain, as well as teachers and governors, for a public inquiry into events that unfolded in Birmingham schools in 2014 after concerns were expressed that the events caused lasting and negative impact on local Muslims and perceptions of their faith. There are also calls for a public apology to those caught up in the affair. Trojan Horse was the name given to an alleged plot by hardline Islamists to take over some Birmingham schools. The alleged plot was revealed by the Birmingham Mail after an anonymous letter claimed dirty tricks were being used to oust non-Muslim staff from city schools. Four separate inquiries were launched at the time, including probes by Birmingham City Council, the Department for Education and Ofsted. No evidence of extremism or of a plot were found. Birmingham City Council's deputy leader, Councillor Bridget Jones, in charge of city schools in 2014, says the city has long since moved on, whilst others claim the issue is unresolved and that investigations at the time were rooted in Islamophobia. The issue has been raised again following a podcast by the New York Times probing the origins of the letter which kick-started the investigations. In the Channel Island of Guernsey, plans for a new sixth-form centre and the closing of one of the island's state high schools have been delayed by a year. The new secondary model had been due to start by September 2024, but the Committee for Education, Sport and Culture said the decision to delay was made after talking to the construction industry. Education President Andrea Dudley-Owen said in a BBC News report, it's more important that we get it right rather than rushing to meet an arbitrary deadline. It is another delay for parents, pupils and staff on what has been a decade-long process of transforming secondary education on the island, a process that has seen promises made by committees which have then not come to fruition. In a research paper published on the FIS.org website, it suggested that pre-primary education played a protective role against COVID learning losses in sub-Saharan Africa. In a study of more than 2,600 children in Ethiopia, researchers found that among pupils who entered primary education immediately after schools reopened, learning losses were far less severe if they'd been in pre-primary education prior to the pandemic. The learning deficit among children without pre-primary experience was four times greater. However, the study also shows that pre-primary education was also the most neglected part of the Ethiopian government's COVID education response. Full details of the study can be found on the FISORG website. The study was commissioned through the World Bank's Early Learning Partnership and undertaken by the University of Cambridge, Addis Ababa University and the Ethiopian Policy Studies Institute. 
This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, it's Safer Internet Week with the official day being on Tuesday the 8th of February. This year, the UK Safer Internet Centre is questioning whether gaming online is all fun and games. They ask young people to explore respect and relationships in online gaming. A lot of schools may be having drop-down days and you may be expected to deliver an online safety lesson. This is great, but are you confident in your knowledge? There's nothing worse than having to teach a lesson out of your comfort zone, especially when you're discussing a topic where the learners may know more than the teacher. Saferinternet.org.uk, the brains behind Safer Internet Day, have come to the rescue with a series of films under the heading of virtual assemblies on their website. Starting with a story about in-app purchases getting out of hand for three to seven year olds, and then for seven to 11 and 11 to 18s, having a discussion on online behavior and respect. This resource is informative and will allow those of us that are less confident to play the film and facilitate a discussion. As always, if you're going to use an online resource, make sure you've watched it first to make sure it's appropriate for your pupils. For a visual version of this episode, check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome back and thank you for staying with me on Teachers Talk Radio. Uh, so we are talking about books in general, my relationship with reading, but specifically teachers as portrayed in literature. So we've already uh, taken a look, inspired by uh, Hudson and Black Blatchford's book Must Do Better, taken a look at Dickens uh, and I explained that they also explored very early portrayals of the lowly status of, of people such as governesses and private tutors in wealthy homes. And they also touched on the fact that in the ancient world, teachers would, of course, have been slaves. Now, that was certainly true of uh, teachers in the home. So what we would now call uh, tutors, um, the kind of thing that extremely wealthy families do still sometimes have. They might employ somebody full time uh, or, or more than one person, almost full time um, to join them on their yacht or whatever. Everyone's got that view of tutoring. Most of it isn't like that, obviously. Um, but yeah, it, do, it does go on. So the super wealthy have this sort of, you know, because they're traveling around the world and they will employ people to come with them. So in the ancient world, those sorts of people would have been slaves. Um, those that, that ran schools, because schools sort of did exist in the ancient world, but not as we know them. So there wasn't there were no school buildings and there was no expectation or, or law about attending school and you did have to pay. The fees, however, were very low. So a lot of people did send at least their boys to school for at least the first few years um, to get them to, to learn to read and write. It wasn't that uncommon, um, except for the extremely poor, which, of course, were the vast majority, uh, to be clear. Um, but those Teachers, a lot of them would have been um, ex-slaves um, or um, or paupers, but of course they had to be educated. So it's quite an interesting notion how what their status was in the ancient world, but it, it wasn't high. They were not high status and they were poorly paid. And that is something that Hudson and Blatchford go on to address next in their book. And I'll be talking to you about them in three weeks time, how teaching is viewed as a profession and whether the 
the pay or people's perceptions of the pay colour that reputation. But for now, let's focus on the literature. So we talked about uh, Watford Squeers and the repulsive portrayal of him by Dickens. Now, I don't know if Roald Dahl has read his Dickens, but I suspect he did. And Roald Dahl also went to a boarding school, uh, which he talks about in his autobiography called Boy. Uh, and again, I'm afraid people that we do not come out well. Um, yeah, not good. And Roald Dahl does portray positive teachers, uh, but he also portrays some pretty awful ones. So the most famous example, of course, is in Matilda. So in Matilda, we've got the goody and the baddie, basically, like all good children's books. So you've got uh, the head teacher, Miss Trunchbull, who is completely tyrannical. Here's a quote. When she marched along a corridor, you could actually hear her snorting as she went. And if a group of children happened to be in her path, she ploughed right on through them like a tank with small people bouncing off her to left and right. So that's the portrayal of the head. She's very much a bully um, and she ultimately gets her comeuppance. Um, happy days. But again, it's, it's quite horrifying, isn't it, that you you have this portrayal and the uh, the irony is that that the physicality of that that description of her basically rugby tackling children in her wake um i spoke to a friend yesterday um i used to work with him at my previous school and he's now moved on as well so neither of us work there anymore uh, but he's still in touch with people that do uh, and apparently in that school the current head, female, was rugby tackled by a student in the corridor and completely knocked over. So, you know, kind of happens the other way around. Slightly horrifying to think. Anyway, back to Dull. He portrays another teacher in the same book, Matilda, Miss Honey. Now, of course, clues in the name. She's the nice one. Miss Trunchbull is the horrible one. And Miss Honey really has an influence on Matilda, as all good children, uh, all good teachers do on children. And the teacher helps her to kind of find her talent, which is her telekinetic powers and and um, channel them for good. Now, Miss Honey exerts a, a real influence through her kindness, it seems. Uh, and she's also, you know, takes a real interest in Matilda. So the message seems to be that teachers are either a bully and don't care about children at all, or they're hugely empathetic. Uh, you never just see somebody who's just competent at their job, which I always think is quite interesting. And it does seem to be a running theme. Teaching, I think, is a profession that everybody has a very emotional relationship with. Everybody's been to school and everybody has and has emotional baggage as a result that influences, frankly, the rest of their life. And certainly if they then go on to have children, it influences their relationship with the school that their children go to. And I don't know about you, but I see that all the time as a professional, that parents cannot separate their own emotional response to school, good or bad, uh, from their their feelings about how their child is doing in school, their feelings about what the school is doing for their child. And if, you know, so if they come in with a positive view, you can reap the benefits of that. I've had parents who were 
ridiculously grateful for everything we do and think oh god yeah calm down it's just my job but thank you um and then the others who are frankly come in with a, a, a with a lot of anger a lot of anger and a lot of hatred for the professional and profession because their own experience of school was was so negative now a book that i taught when i first started teaching uh, when I used to teach quite a bit of English, uh, as well as Latin, was Skellig by David Armand. I quite enjoyed teaching it. There was lots, we did it with Year 7, um, so obviously you, you want to do something. It, it was short, it was quite inspiring, there was lots, lots that I liked about it. What I didn't like about it was the way it portrayed school. So my recollection of the book is the... So there's two key characters that the children follow in it. One's a boy, one's a girl. And the boy goes to school like a normal child. And the girl is homeschooled and has an extraordinary um, interest in all sorts of things. She spends all her time outside. But of course, just naturally has an incredible love of reading and reads all sorts of different things um, and seems to be advance beyond her years and understands things on a level that the boy doesn't because he's stuck in school and it, it I remember it slightly grating on me and, and finding it hard to know how to handle it like most things my instinct was well let's talk about it and talk, you can't avoid it it's there in in the novel and you, you have to discuss with students okay what is this saying about what school does to young people so the the girl i can't remember their names I mean, i've taught the novel for two or three years i can't remember their names um but the 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 girl character regularly quotes poetry as you do as a child but you know that's how she's portrayed she regularly quotes poetry and she regularly quotes a poem by keats which goes as follows I love to rise in a summer morn when the birds sing on every tree. The distant huntsman winds his horn and the skylark sings with me. Oh, what sweet company. But oh, to go to school in a summer morn, it drives all joy away. Under a cruel eye outworn, the little ones spend the day in sighing and dismay. Ah, then at times I drooping sit and spend many an anxious hour, nor in my book can I take delight, nor sit in learning's bower, worn through with the dreary shower. How can the bird that is born for joy sit in a cage and sing? How can a child, when fears annoy, but droop his tender wing and forget his youthful spring? I mean, really? <laughs> um, yeah, now, fortunately, the whole poem is not quoted in the book. So the chunk that the girl repeats regularly, as my recollection is she says it more than once in the novel, is the two-line excerpt, how can the bird that is born for joy sit in a cage and sing? And she kind of uses it almost as like a taunt to the boy because he goes to school. And she's sitting up in it like sitting up in a tree. She climbs trees as well. You know, she's just totally free-spirited and... I mean, it, it, it does 
it is a little bit infuriating um, when you're teaching a book that portrays school as putting shackles on the children that attend. <laughs> and I remember finding it a little bit tricky. Uh, so another portrayal of teachers, we're going to move away from teachers in children's books for a, for a bit now. Uh, I couldn't talk about teachers in literature without talking about To Sew With Love, which is, of course, made into a really famous film. Um, and it's an autobiographical novel written by a man called Ricky Braithwaite. And it's sort of post-war, well, 10, 10 or 20 years after the Second World War. Um, and his novel, he's some, he was from Guyana, which at the time was basically a British colony. And he is in England looking for work and faces a lot of racial bigotry because at the time uh, that uh, the novel was uh, about. And he does find work as a teacher in a white working class high school in East London. And it's an interesting read because it does really date. Um, you know, if you read the book, it's almost as if, I wonder if people would struggle with with reading it now if if they're a bit twitchy about, about certain things. So, for example, there's staff room gossip about some possibly lesbian teachers. Da -da 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 -da! Yeah. Um, so obviously, at the time, that was all terribly shocking and um, exciting. Um, so, I, I th this is the trouble with books; they do date. Um, not lot, not that long ago, about only about two or three years ago, I listened to on audiobook um, a novel by George Orwell, Down and Out in Paris and London, which I'd never read. Obviously, I've read 1984. Hasn't everybody? But I thought, oh, you know, I ought to branch out a bit. And I read, I read it, uh, listened to it, and whoa, the anti-Semitism in it took me by surprise. Um, yeah, I found myself really struggling with it. But of course, Orwell doesn't matter whether you're a genius or not he was a man of his time uh so there we go yeah so to say with love is still really worth a read because it is there is something heartwarming about it you've just got to remember it was written in 1959 um so be prepared now another one which i have read very recently i think last year i listened to it on audiobook is the prime of miss jean brady by Muriel Spark. That was written in 1961. And of course, again, turned into an incredibly famous film. It's Maggie Smith, I think, isn't it? Who plays her. I don't think I've ever seen the whole film. I've seen clips from it. Um, Give me a girl at an impressionable age and she is mine for life. And my Scottish accent is not very good, but that's the famous quote from it. And I'm going to be totally honest here. I don't think I understood this novel. Um, so I would really appreciate some schooling on it, ironically, because um, I don't think I got it. I, I enjoyed it. I didn't dislike it. But I found myself struggling with what what I was meant to take away from it. I'm not, I don't know if it was just the time period that I struggled with, my understanding of the history 
is a little hazy uh, in terms of, of the history that Miss Jean Brodie is interested in and the influence she's trying to have on the children. Um, what I certainly did take away from it is this idea of a teacher as having such a profound impact on certain children that it's actually very unhealthy. Um, so she has what what are known in the school as the Brody set, and it's and it's acknowledged by others in the school, and it and it it, it gets thoroughly out of hand, um, and all ends in tears as you might expect. Um, and again, it's obviously portrays a certain era when things that would not be tolerated now in a school were tolerated even if disapproved of. Um, so she forms overly intense and inappropriate relationships with her Brody set, and they are absolutely in her thrall. Um, so I found it really fascinating from that point of view. And then there's also a sort of running theme, it seemed to me, that you you sort of know, know I can't remember if it's all the way through or most of the way through, you know she's going to be betrayed by one of her sort of devotees. Um, yeah, and, I, and then it, it all sort of ends, she also has some sort of like really inappropriate relationships with me I was I was very confused and I would love I would really love to talk to somebody who's read it or know ideally who knows the novel really well and I can go well, what was that about then I don't get it because I did find the whole thing really puzzling I'll be honest um and I've had this with a couple of Muriel Spark novels actually I think it might just be a a generational thing that I just, I, I'm not sure I'm understanding her but she's all all in many ways very worth reading and this novel definitely worth reading it's i think it's generally considered to be her her best it's certainly her most famous i think that idea again of, of the teacher as the as somebody who has a mesmerizing influence on the children uh, that she teaches and it seems to me this again is a running theme that either either your teacher is a bully, repulsive, terrifying, or they are a sort of extraordinary communicator and have some kind of um, telepathic control over the children that they teach. And it seems to be the case that in novels, they are one or other of those things which is a little bit worrying when you think about things, really. Now, for the final section of the show, I thought I'd go a bit off-piste. And we've taken a whistle-stop tour through, through some portrayals of teachers in novels. And, of course, at least a couple of the novels that I've discussed have been very famously turned into films, and the films of perhaps been seen by more people than have read the book. So I thought for the last section of the show, I would finish by taking a little look at uh, teachers in film as well. And I'm going to look again at just a handful of examples of films that I've seen and have very strong recollections of how the teachers were portrayed. Uh, and we will uh, 
come back to that after my second playing of the news. So don't go anywhere. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.weatherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Introducing Uplearn. Uplearn is an online curriculum learning resource for A-levels that improves student outcomes whilst reducing teacher workloads. Teachers use Uplearn to facilitate independent learning and consolidation of classroom material. Over 150 schools have seen grade improvements with Uplearn, including St Paul's Girls School, Michaela Community School and ARC Schools. Book a demo at uplearn.co.uk and quote TTR for 10% off. That's Uplearn, U-P-L-E-A-R-N If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common, a passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Following reports earlier this week of the UCAS announcement that 2020 to 2021 saw a surge in applicants to university from students from disadvantaged backgrounds, one of Greater Manchester's universities revealed data showing that nearly 99% of its students last year fell into one or more of the five core underrepresented groups. In a report in the Manchester Evening News, the University of Bolton highlights figures showing that last year, 28% of applicants were from disadvantaged areas, up from 17% in 2013. University bosses say that these figures show that the university is helping students climb the social and economic ladder. The university's Vice-Chancellor, Professor George E. Holmes, said the University of Bolton is proud to have one of the most diverse and inclusive student populations in the UK. Widening participation projects take place across the UK and are designed to improve access, success and progression for underrepresented groups in higher education. The Birmingham Live News website reports on Birmingham City Council's leaders' plea to leave Trojan Horse in the past. It follows calls by the Muslim Council of Britain, as well as teachers and governors, for a public inquiry into events that unfolded in Birmingham schools in 2014, after concerns were expressed that the events caused lasting and negative impact on local Muslims and perceptions of their faith. There are also calls for a public apology to those caught up in the affair. Trojan Horse was the name given to an alleged plot by hardline Islamists to take over some Birmingham schools. 
The alleged plot was revealed by the Birmingham Mail after an anonymous letter claimed dirty tricks were being used to oust non-Muslim staff from city schools. Four separate inquiries were launched at the time, including probes by Birmingham City Council, the Department for Education and Ofsted. No evidence of extremism or of a plot were found. Birmingham City Council's deputy leader, Councillor Bridget Jones, in charge of city schools in 2014, says the city has long since moved on, whilst others claim the issue is unresolved and that investigations at the time were rooted in Islamophobia. The issue has been raised again following a podcast by the New York Times probing the origins of the letter which kick-started the investigations. In the Channel Island of Guernsey, plans for a new sixth form centre and the closing of one of the island's state high schools have been delayed by a year. The new secondary model had been due to start by September 2024, but the Committee for Education, Sport and Culture said the decision to delay was made after talking to the construction industry. Education President Andrea Dudley-Owen said in a BBC News report, it's more important that we get it right rather than rushing to meet an arbitrary deadline. It is another delay for parents, pupils and staff on what has been a decade-long process of transforming secondary education on the island, a process that has seen promises made by committees which have then not come to fruition. In a research paper published on the FIS.org website, it suggested that pre-primary education played a protective role against COVID learning losses in sub-Saharan Africa. In a study of more than 2,600 children in Ethiopia, Researchers found that among pupils who entered primary education immediately after schools reopened, learning losses were far less severe if they'd been in pre-primary education prior to the pandemic. The learning deficit among children without pre-primary experience was four times greater. However, the study also shows that pre-primary education was also the most neglected part of the Ethiopian government's COVID education response. Full details of the study can be found on the FISORG website. The study was commissioned through the World Bank's Early Learning Partnership and undertaken by the University of Cambridge, Addis Ababa University and the Ethiopian Policy Studies Institute. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, it's Safe Internet Week, with the official day being on Tuesday the 8th of February. This year, the UK Safer Internet Centre is questioning whether gaming online is all fun and games. They ask young people to explore respect and relationships in online gaming. A lot of schools may be having drop-down days, and you may be expected to deliver an online safety lesson. This is great, but are you confident in your knowledge? There's nothing worse than having to teach a lesson out of your comfort zone, especially when you're discussing a topic where the learners may know more than the teacher. Saferinternet.org.uk, the brains behind Safer Internet Day, have come to the rescue with a series of films under the heading of Virtual Assemblies on their website. Starting with a story about in-app purchases getting out of hand for 3 to 7 year olds, and then for 7 to 11 and 11 to 18s having a discussion on online behaviour and respect. This resource is informative and will allow those of us that are less confident to play the film and facilitate a discussion. As always, if you're going to use an online resource, make sure you've watched it first to make sure it's appropriate for your pupils. For a visual version of this episode, check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. 
Live from Woking, this is the Saturday Brunch with Emma Williams. Hello everyone and welcome back after the news, ads and tech briefing. I'm talking about my relationship with reading. I'm talking about the portrayal of teachers in novels and literature. And we're just going to move on to the portrayal of teachers in film. So strap yourselves in. We're going to go visual. Live from Woking, this is the Saturday Brunch with Emma Williams on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. So we looked at how teachers in novels seem to be either uh, gentle, empathetic and inspiring, uh, mesmeric, or at the other end of the extreme, uh, revolting bullies. Now, it seems to me that teachers uh, on film fall into two main categories and they're not quite the same. They are either inspiring mavericks, and we'll start with those, or jaded, bitter, old, uh, I can't use that word on Teachers Talk Radio, jaded and bitter, let's let's leave it there, jaded and bitter, uh, and I'm going to finish with those with some seriously funny clips from two of my favourite films. So let's start, start with the inspiring mavericks, first of all. So the example I'm going to give you uh, of this is John Keating in Dead Poets Society. Now, if you haven't seen that film, I assume that you are either very young and therefore um, it passed you by, or you've been, if you are over 40, you must have been living under a rock because it was humongous at the time. Uh, It's a great film. It's quite schmaltzy, but in all the right ways, um, very moving. I was in love with Robert Shaw Leonard when it came out because obviously we all were. Um, so it's set in, uh, it's American, uh, obviously. Uh, it's set in a very exclusive uh, private boarding school and so follows several of the boys and one in particular play, played by Robert Shaw Leonard who, encouraged by John Keating, uh, starts developing a love of poetry obviously. Uh, And also uh, he discovers a love of acting. He suddenly realises this is what he's desperately wanted to do. But of course, his horrible disapproving parents, particularly his father, um, would not approve. And so he does it in secret. And it all comes out and it all ends. It doesn't end well. um, um, Without giving you any spoilers, uh, I'm afraid it doesn't end well for his character. But John Keating is portrayed as not just as inspiring, but as a complete maverick. So he goes against the system. He, you know, he stands up to some of the other teachers who are all like real old fuddy-duddies. He does things like take them out of the classroom and uh, gets them to stand on their desks. And I mean, it's, it's, they all sit around in groups, hanging on his every word while he reads bits of Shakespeare to them, which of course they find hilariously funny or deeply moving as they are expected. It's it's ludicrous. Um, and those of you that have seen it and know about it probably also know that Dead Poets Society and John Keating in particular 
are a sort of almost like a, a meme for yeah I'm just such a great teacher I'm like that so I quite regularly make the joke yeah all the kids stand on their desks and shout oh captain my captain when I enter because that is one of the moments in the film so yeah he he is he's a maverick he's wonderful it's terrific fun watch it but again it's not it's not going to help you with your profession uh, put it that way Another film which I would highly recommend, it's one of my favourite films and I really must watch it again, is the Browning version. And it stars Albert Finney as Andrew Crocker Harris, who's a teacher on the brink of retirement. Now, we are now starting to move into my other category of how teachers are portrayed on the film, uh, which is the jaded and useless. Now, this film is incredibly moving because it portrays Crocker Harris as this man at the end of his career uh, who realises that he's a failure, that he's a complete failure. He's fa his marriage has failed, his wife's um, having sex with somebody much younger than him, another colleague, um, and he sort of knows about it but doesn't want to face up to it. Um, and but But the focus of the film is not on his relationship at all, it's on his his career and his realisation that he has been a horrible teacher, uh, that he hasn't inspired anybody, and that he's been, frankly, not very good at his job. And also during that period, when is it set sort of, I would say, kind of 50s onwards? I might be wrong about that. Um, but basically, the film is also in part about how the world started changing and subjects like classics, which Crocker Harris is a teacher of, you know, Latin and Greek, and he's sort of portrayed of, you know, with lots of sort of fusty volumes of, of literature. Um, the world has moved on. Nobody's interested anymore. It's all about science and there's lessons going on down the corridor where things are exploding and it's all very exciting. And he's been left behind and he sort of suddenly realises that his subject is dead. He's been a dismal failure. Uh, and it it is so moving. I remember howling at the at the end of the film. There may have been a little bit of um, transference going on because I was very fond of my um, very socially awkward uh, and sort of deeply sad uh, classics master at the time. So I think it was probably to do with that. But also, I'm a complete sucker for vulnerable older men um you know just that sort of realizing that they're a dismal failure the sort of oh my life has been wasted and I, I haven't really succeeded and the sadness in the eyes I'm a complete sucker for that it's great stuff and again really fascinating um about the profession during a certain period and how this this man just feels like everything that he's tried to do he's failed at and that actually the world's moved on anyway and no one's really interested anymore. So that's really worth saying. Very, very English film. Very English. Hugely English. But well, I'm going to finish my show on two American films. So we've, we've had American with Dead Poets Society. I'm going to uh, come full circle and come back to two American films that have fantastic portrayals of school. So... I'm going to start with Ferris Bueller's Day Off, uh, which is a fantastic film from the uh, 1980s. They're both from the 1980s. And 
Ferris Bueller's Day Off is exactly what it says. It's about a kid who takes a day off school with his friends. They all bunk off. So the whole premise is, again, uh, that school is rubbish. None of us want to be there. Uh, and we'll do absolutely anything we can to get out of it. So at least the first quarter or one third of the film is uh, Ferris faking his faking an illness. So that's how, and his parents are complete suckers. So they let him stay at home and they both go off to work. And then the rest of the beginning of the film is about him breaking out his girlfriend. So he goes to all sorts of lengths uh, and the story involves a dead grandmother to, to, <laughs> to sort of fake events that mean she has to come out of school. So the fantastic portrayal of teachers in it is incredible. It's worth seeing for all the different stereotypes. So you've got the head who's absolutely determined to catch uh, Ferris out and is, is you know, just absolutely hates him. And he's got a real bee in his bonnet about this kid who always gets away with everything. But the portrayal of teachers in the classroom is absolutely legendary and extremely funny. We are portrayed as unbelievably boring. So there's no bad behaviour portrayed in the classes. Basically, the teachers are so boring that all of the kids are just catatonic. And the scene that I want to play you an audio clip from is one of my favourite scenes. And if I'm having one of those moments in a class, you know, I call them tumbleweed moments where you're up there going, just can somebody give me something? My current year 11s, it's pretty much like that all the time. And just to make myself laugh, internally, I quote from this film. They don't get it. Of course, they've never seen it. They've got no idea what I'm doing, but it, it keeps me sane. And what I say is, anyone, anyone, I'm going to play you the clip and you will see what I'm talking about. So this portrays an economics lesson and the visuals are all of the students um, and their expressions, which range from just completely catatonic to visceral hatred uh, <laughs> as they stare at this teacher as he speaks. So here is Mr. Economics. In 1930, the Republican-controlled House of Representatives, in an effort to alleviate the effects of the, anyone, anyone, the Great Depression, passed the, anyone, anyone, a tariff bill, the Hawley-Smoot Tariff Act, which, anyone, raised or lowered, raised tariffs in an effort to collect more revenue for the federal government. Did it work? Anyone? Anyone know the effects? It did not work, and the United States sank deeper into the Great Depression. Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Anyone? Anyone seen this before? The Laffer Curve. Anyone know what this says? It says that at this point on the revenue curve, you will get exactly the same amount of revenue as at this point, this is very controversial. Does anyone know what Vice President Bush called this in 1980? Anyone? Something D-O-O -O economics. Voodoo economics. So I have occasionally come out of a lesson and said 
to it. You've got to pick the right colleague who's the right age and just say, I've just had a voodoo economics lesson and they totally get what you mean. So yeah, I like to stand in front of my year 11s going, anyone, anyone, and it, it amuses me. Um, keeps me going in, in those moments. And so I didn't mention, you'd have heard a sudden squeak there, which was as he put his chalk on the chalkboard. And at that particular moment, there's a kid who's had his head flat on the desk, completely asleep, and is jerked awake by this squeaking noise. And he's drooled all over the desk. <laughs> it's just, it's just brilliant. And so I mean so depressing for those of us in the profession but I mean on the other hand we've all been there we've all sat in really boring classes and you know I think we're all mad enough to accept that we are probably that boring at least some of the time I know I am as evidenced by my year 11s so that's my first clip Ferris Bueller's Day Off highly recommend incredibly dated if you want to see big square boxy cars it's just awesome now my second clip you've probably guessed is from The Breakfast Club, another 80s classic. And there are so many clips that I would like to use um, of Richard Vernon, who is the teacher in the film. A lot of them I can't use because there's quite a lot of swearing in them and I'm told that's not allowed. I did ask, but I was very, very firmly told that no, it's not allowed on Teachers Talk Radio. So I'm afraid you will only be getting a clip where this is the teacher where the kids are present. So of course, can't be any swearing in it. Although I did have to cut the end of it because as he walks off, the, char the kid's character played by Judd Nelson does call him something that is definitely not for the ears of the faint hearted. I had to look up what it meant. Um, and it's rude. So the clip I'm gonna portray is right at the beginning of the film. So for the uninitiated, The Breakfast Club is about a Saturday detention. So it's about a bunch of kids in high school who all for, for one reason or another have been given a full day's detention on a Saturday. And Richard Vernon, who is your my absolute favorite, favorite example of a jaded, embittered, teacher he's been teaching 22 years exactly the same period of time as as i have if you include my training year so yep he he's my favorite example of a teacher who's really had enough the clip i would have loved to portray you to play you um is him in an in the office talking to the janitor and it's just him going oh kids these days and um and the janitor going you know it's absolute rubbish. The kids haven't changed. You have. And what, what would you think of you when, when you were 16? It's a really good clip, but unfortunately there's quite a lot of swearing in it. But it, it's so great. But the bit that I can play you, right at the start of the film, so the kids have just arrived, they're all sat in desks, and Richard Vernon is comes striding, and he's, he's, he's a revolting character, and he's portrayed as really smug that he's got them all there, he's going to show them. And the plan for the day is that they're just all going to sit there and reflect on the errors of their ways, um, which of course isn't going to work. Uh, so we'll maybe maybe talk about that afterwards. So here is the, the little clip. So you imagine sort of six or eight teenagers, um, some of them very, uh, some of them who are very used to being there because they're always in trouble 
one or two who are very much not uh, listening to the arrival of Richard Vernon. Well, well, here we are. I want to congratulate you for being on time. Excuse me, sir. I think there's been a mistake. I know it's detention, but um, I don't think I belong in here. It is now 7.06. You have exactly eight hours and 54 minutes to think about why you're here, to ponder the error of your ways. And you may not talk. You will not move from these seats. And you will not sleep. All right, people, we're going to try something a little different today. We are going to write an essay of no less than a thousand words describing to me who you think you are. This is this a test? And when I say essay, I mean essay. I do not mean a single word repeated a thousand times. Is that clear, Mr. Bender? Crystal. Good. Maybe you'll learn a little something about yourself. Maybe you'll even decide whether or not you care to return. Uh, yeah, you know, I can answer that right now, sir. You know, that'd be no, no for me, because... Sit down, Johnson. Thank you, sir. My office is right across that hall. Any monkey business is ill-advised. Any questions? Yeah, I got a question. Does Barry Manilow know that you raid his wardrobe? Give you the answer to that question, Mr. Bender, next Saturday. Don't mess with the bull, young man. You'll get the horns. <laughs> He's so awful. And, yeah, the character played by John Nelson, who says at the end, does Barry Manilow know that you raid his wardrobe? Which, quite frankly, I think I would laugh at, uh, no matter what side of the desk I was on. Um, <laughs> yeah, he he is really portrayed as this person who's so out of touch with young people that he just has no idea how to relate to them. He, and he's just lost all connection with them whatsoever, which is what the janitor points out to him. You know, what would you think of you when you were 60? And he, he, he can't even answer. He can't connect back with the young person that he used to be. Um, it's, it's terrific fun. And this concept that shutting them in a room and telling them to reflect on the error of their ways and write an essay about who they think they are. I mean, really, yeah, absolutely amazing stuff. So, well, I hope you've enjoyed uh, my little um, whistle-stop tour through reading, teachers in books, and touching at the end on teachers in films. So I should tell you what I'm doing next week because it's exciting. Next week, I am interviewing... Katie Waldegrave and Matthew Booker, who are from Now Teach. Katie's one of the founding members, and I think uh, Matthew is someone that the organisation helped. So it's a group that helps people change their career into teaching, so people who come to the profession uh, later on. And uh, it's very exciting um, that they've agreed to come on the show, so I'll be interviewing them next week. And then, of course, as I mentioned at the start of the show, in two weeks time uh, after that so three weeks from today two weeks from that other show it's very confusing i will be interviewing harry hudson 
co-author of Must Do Better, How to Improve the Image of Teaching. I'm really looking forward to that too. So a couple of exciting shows coming up from me in the next two or three weeks. Today on Teachers Talk Radio, we have got Joe Hammond, who's following me. So he's on at one o'clock. And don't forget as well, if you are a Twitter user, um, if you're on Edu Twitter in particular, um, we have a Twitter Spaces show that goes on pretty much whenever anyone feels like it. Sometimes we put one on because there's a particular conversation going on. We sometimes put one on when there isn't a regular show. And we get joined by lots and lots of people. It's really interactive. Lots of people come on to join in. There's lots of chat. So I do really encourage you to listen out for that. So you can look on the Teachers Talk Radio Twitter account. Um, If you see the Teachers Talk Radio, if you follow us and you see the account sort of flashing or throbbing in purple above your uh, timeline, then that's, that's a live show going on at the time. So you can just click on it and start listening it's it's really great fun we have a a regular uh, room 101 um where we put things in that we wish didn't happen in teaching and that always gets uh, lots of people interested so do tune in uh, to the twitter spaces and do tune in to joe at one o'clock i will leave the show here and very much looking forward to joining you again next week And until then, take care. Have a good half term if you're just starting. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.